Well, sometimes in life we have big dreams for ourselves. We feel like we want to change the world. Sometimes we can, but for the unlucky few, it doesn't happen until after we pass. This episode is about a woman killed long before her time and in death, she changed the path of many victims and would-be victims across the United States. All of this wouldn't have happened if she hadn't been raped and murdered during a holiday weekend in 2003. The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty, but some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Becky, and I'm here with my adventurous friend, Melanie. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. So let's dive into Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hello, friends. We hope you're all doing well. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, I hope everyone out there is happy and healthy and enjoying this beautiful autumn season. Thanks for joining us here. Yes, we are enjoying this new weather. It's cooled down a little bit where we live, so that's feeling good. And Mel, I got my Halloween decorations up. I bet you did. She's been wanting to since September 1st. (laughs) She asked if it was too early, and I was like, no, I think you're good. So they're finally up. Yes, they are. Finally. And I'm I'm completely in the spirit because I have been researching some very spooky cases for October. I am excited to hear those. Um, You recommended a creepy good book to me too that i read the other oh, day I and i was like oh that got did you finish it? yeah i did it's so good very good we gotta talk about books after we record oh, yeah we should <laughs> we love reading so for the month of october we're going to be featuring some more of the creepy side of stories some paranormal things like that haunting yes just a little bit creep on the creepier side aliens i just love it i've had such a blast researching and writing these becky just wants to write those stories all year round oh I think. it's so fun so fun, especially because it's in our backyard here. I, I did not realize how spooky we are here in the Rocky Mountains. Well, I'm excited to hear them. Mm-hmm. So we are growing every week. We love it. We're so excited to see more people listening to our show. So please keep sharing with friends and family. Rate and review us. It really helps us out so much. And thank you for all of your support. Just a reminder, be sure you are subscribed and follow us on all of our social medias. There's quite a few now. So check out our link tree. Um, So make sure you are connected. Yeah. Before we get started, we'd like to offer you a heads up. Today's story contains details that might be difficult for some to hear. Though we always put great care and respect into each of our cases, The true stories do often explore physical violence, sexual violence, familial violence, suicide ideation, and other content that may be upsetting or triggering to some. Please take a moment and decide what's best for you. If you or someone you know needs help with emotional and or crisis counseling and resources, please dial 988 in the U.S. Ask for help. You are not alone. So without further delay, let's get into our episode today. This case is from The Land of Enchantment, New Mexico. The episode is entitled 31 Down, 19 to Go, which you will find out why it's called that a little bit later on. So on August 31st, 2003, two men headed down an old dirt road in the East Mesa Desert just outside of Las Cruces, New Mexico. The area was the site of an old landfill, and with nothing for around for miles, This was their spot that they were going to go target shooting that day. And it was Labor Day weekend, so the friends were looking forward to one of their favorite hobbies. As they drove up, they saw something that, like, didn't quite make sense, didn't quite compute to them. Um, It was actually a body that was partially nude. A woman lay on her stomach, legs were spread apart, wearing only a dark-colored shirt. 
They placed a call immediately into 911, and the official call time on that was 11.18 a.m. I mean, within minutes, law enforcement arrived and started to assess the scene. They could tell that the body had really only been there for a matter of hours. It was like a miracle straight from heaven that these men had come across this place so quickly after this happened to go target shooting. Uh, Yeah, the investigators were talking about how rural this is. The investigator that I saw interviewed said, if these men didn't choose to go target shooting that day, it could have easily been months. Yeah. Months. So it really was a blessing that they were, that she was found so quickly. Yeah, this was not a place that many people visited. Captain Robert Jones with the Donna Anna Sheriff's Department could smell an igniter fluid that had been poured on the body. Um, The burning of this body had actually failed. There was only like a small portion of the backside of the victim that had burns on her. She was in her 20s. She had dark shoulder length hair, blue eyes. But at this point, they were just wondering, who was she? Who was this woman? So law enforcement could plainly see tire tracks. Someone had driven up just a few hours prior, dumped this poor woman's body into the dirt of the desert and left. It looked as if she had been strangled, but of course, an autopsy is needed for like the official cause of death and to gather any additional evidence. So this is where the investigation of Katie Sepich's murder began. Before her friends and family knew that she was gone, Katie's remains were transported to the New Mexico State Office of the Medical Investigator in Albuquerque. And this is where they would do the autopsy and then collect any evidence they could find. Yeah, at this time in her life, times were changing for Katie and all of her friends. Uh, school had just started August 18th. They, the group of friends were you know, floating in different directions. They were all in college, and this is a very transitional time in people's lives. Some had graduated, some had moved away, some were just pursuing different programs in their education. Yeah, Katie had decided to stay at New Mexico State University after graduation, and she began her grad school for business administration. She like wasn't quite sure what she wanted to do with her education. She just wanted to, quote, change the world. Like, that was her goal, as she told her mother that That's summer. so great. Yeah, she really just was going to make a difference. And she would, just not the way that she had intended. Katie would change the world and impact many, many lives. It was Labor Day weekend, August 30th, 2003, to be exact. Katie and her friends had fun weekend plans. They were going to make the most of that weekend. Katie started the day by waking up in her apartment that she shared with her two good friends. Her roommate's mom was staying there with the girls over the holiday weekend, so the house this weekend was extra busy. Yeah, so Katie's longtime boyfriend was in town that weekend as well. His name was Joe Bischoff. He had just moved home to Gallup, New Mexico to help with the family business. So Katie and Joe were dedicated and to that long distance thing. Have you ever done a long distance relationship? That is hard. Yes, it I sucks. Have. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. not fun. But they were still really dedicated to each other, you know, despite the miles, hours between them. Yeah. They had sat down and made a plan, like a schedule for their future. They planned to trade off weekends back and forth visiting each other. They did talk about marriage, but Katie really wanted to complete her education before she made that giant step in her life. I think that speaks a lot of Katie as a person, like to be, okay, we need to make a spreadsheet or pull out the calendar and let, you know what I mean? Like I can see why she was so successful and in grad school that if she wanted something, she was going to pursue it and make sure that there was that path to to reach it. So I love that. So Joe and Katie met up that day and headed to a local jewelry store. He purchased her a ring, but not an engagement ring, more like an I love you ring. 
It was a beautiful blue topaz ring. It was her birthstone. Uh, She completely loved it. She had her eye on it for a while, and they spent the afternoon together before Katie had to go into work at the El Sombrero restaurant. She worked as a server there, and she really enjoyed her job. She got off of her shift at about 10.30 p.m. that night. She met up with all of her friends and Joe, her boyfriend, at one of their favorite local bars. Security cameras did capture the friends having fun that night at the bar. Yeah, I looked at the footage and it just seemed completely normal. I mean, just a group of friends laughing, talking, you know, dancing. There's a jukebox in the corner. They're listening to music. Joe and Katie held hands as they left the bar and the group of friends all met up for a house party to wrap up their night. The house, it was a duplex in the West Mason neighborhood on Roadrunner Parkway there in Las Cruces. It was a duplex that belonged to Joe's cousin. So they just kind of moved the party from the bar to the house. Yeah. As the drinks just kept flowing, the night kind of got fuzzy for most of those partygoers. They either like took off in the early morning hours for home or they found an empty bed in the house and just crashed there for the night. Everyone at the house, um, there were probably between 30 and 60 people and they were very, very drunk just after hours partying. Yeah, that's a big party. That's huge. Yeah. One of the friends in the group was Tracy Waters. She is Katie's really good friend and roommate. She awoke after Joe kept knocking on the door of the room that she'd fallen asleep in. Joe asked if she knew where Katie was at. Yeah, but Tracy had no clue, right? She'd passed out just along with everyone else the night before, and she didn't know where Katie was. So she grabbed her phone to, like, try and call Katie, but Joe stopped her. A phone call would be no help, is what Joe told her, because Katie had left her phone and Joe actually had the phone. Tracy asked if something had happened during the party. Had they, like, gotten into a fight? Was there some altercation? Like, why would Katie have left without her phone? Okay, so a fight wouldn't have been a surprise for anyone involved. Anyone who knew Joe and Katie were known that they have their ups and downs, you know, in their relationship. Some some couples are just more like that. They're more passionate. Right. Yeah. Joe said that they had, hadn't gotten into an argument at all or anything like that. She had just disappeared. Tracy suspected that Katie maybe had just walked home. It Like their house was only like three blocks away. So I see if you're just so drunk and you're tired, you just want to go home sometimes, right? Yeah. And it would be easy to forget your phone in that situation. Mm-hmm. Tracy headed home and was surprised to find that Katie was not in her bedroom. She was surprised surprised to find that Katie wasn't anywhere in the house. The doors were still locked. The house was like just as they had left it the night before. There was no sign that Katie had been there. So Tracy reached back out to Joe to see like what else they could try. Where What could they do to like try and figure out where Katie could be? So this is when the alarm bells really started going off in Tracy's head. Sometimes best friends, girlfriends are better at seeing those or hearing those alarm bells, I should say, more than guys. Don't you think? I agree. Yeah. So Joe told her that Katie had left everything at his cousin's house. I'm talking like her purse, her phone, her keys, her car, even like everything. Yeah. So Tracy like started to call everyone that they knew in the area just to see if maybe Katie had ended up at somebody else's house. All she heard was a chorus of no's like nobody knew where she was and so at this point she knew that things were really getting serious yeah and i understand that she was drunk but i don't think someone leaves their keys their car their everything their phone well and especially if she wasn't going home i can see it maybe if she had just wandered home after that but they're right if she was three blocks away but to not go home 
You're right. It's a very different clear. situation. Yeah, to not take your stuff if you're going over to someone's house or going into like a 24-hour restaurant or something like that. Yeah, yeah you're right. So Tracy questioned Joe one more time. One more time. She knew something was up. She said, "Are you sure nothing happened last night?" Well, he didn't exactly tell the truth earlier. He finally fessed up. Joe did admit that the couple had gone into an argument and it was around 3 a.m. Um, he didn't really want to give any other details, but he did say that they did fight in the early morning hours. Tracy went back to the phones. She called hospital, jails. You know, those are the places that you call when you're missing someone. Just anywhere that she could think of to try and find her friend. Yeah, and Joe and his cousin started driving around the neighborhood looking for, like, any sign of Katie. Joe, you know, kind of was acting earlier that he was frustrated that she was like causing this drama you know i think guys can kind of go that way more often but um you know he was trying to kind of look for her and stuff but as hours ticked by he did start to get very nervous like did something really happen to katie last night that afternoon tracy called dave and jan sepich they lived in carlsbad new mexico which was about 200 miles away tracy thought like maybe katie had reached out to her parents but there was no such luck. Jayanne offered suggestions like, have you called their friends? Which they had. Have you called her phone? Then they told them that they had the phone. Katie didn't even have it with her. Yeah, Tracy answered Jayanne's questions and both women agreed it was time to bring in the police. They hung up and Tracy immediately called the police and Dave, Katie's dad, doing what dads do in that situation. He hopped in the car and he was going to find his daughter. It was about 3 p.m. on August 31st. 2003. So this is after that 911 call had been made about the body. Correct? Yes, it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they've already found her, but obviously we don't know. They don't exactly. know that's her yet. No, good job. Found it together. Mark Myers, a detective with the Las Cruces Police Department, met with Tracy, gathered all of the information that they needed. He did request a picture of Katie and got right to work on her case. Less than an hour later, Detective Myers called Tracy back. He asked her if she'd be willing to come and make an identification. Tracy was excited. She thought, okay, great. Things are moving quickly. Katie must have been like picked up by the police. And who knows? She could have been passed out on the sidewalk, something like that. Or she must be in a holding cell. She'd been pretty drunk last night. So they probably just tossed her in the drunk tank, right? So Tracy would pick her up and they could go home and the whole ordeal would be over, right? Well, Detective Myers came by and picked up Tracy. Um, Instead of heading to the police station as expected, uh, they drove actually to the local hospital. So, Kay Tracy thought, like, Katie must have maybe, like, fallen and gotten hurt last night. Those are just, like, the assumptions that you make in that situation. You can't go to worst case. For sure. Right? Maybe she's dehydrated. Yeah. Yeah. So, Detective Myers and Tracy entered the hospital. And instead of choosing a numbered floor on the elevator, Detective Myers pushed the button indicating the basement. Mel... What's usually in the basement of a hospital? The morgue. Yeah, exactly. So let's stop here for our first sponsor break. Give your brain the natural nutrients, blood flow, and neurotransmitter support it needs to make the fight with depression an unfair fight. Get stronger daily with Whole Supplement. Build momentum each day with the Whole Depression Relief Stack. The three targeted daily formulas that will help you feel, enjoy, and progress again. So, how do you take the whole stack? One, wake up formula. Take wake up in the morning with a glass of water to kick off your day with motivation and energy. 
Number two is the daytime formula. Day take daytime around lunch to ensure you have the focus, mood, and productivity to power through the day. That sounds like something we all need. Number three, the sleep it off formula. Take sleep it off about an hour before you plan to go to sleep for amazing rest and brain support that will consistently set you up for better days. I've experienced depression since I was a teen. I try to do my best to take care of my mental and emotional health and manage my anxiety and depression. But even with medication, I can find myself struggling some days. I started taking whole supplement just a couple weeks ago, and I already feel like I am giving my body the armor it needs to win the fight each and every day. The ingredients in whole supplements have been used for hundreds of years. They just haven't been put together this way to help people struggling with depression. There are no proprietary blends and no hidden ingredients in Whole Supplement. So here's Adam Steer, founder and CEO of Whole Supplement. I started Whole Supplement with the mission to help others who, like myself, have struggled with finding relief from depression and anxiety. Our number one goal is to empower everyone we can to make meaningful progress every single day. So now is the time to take care of your emotional and mental health. During the pre-launch offer, you can receive the entire Whole Depression Relief Stack at 15% off. Go to wholesupplement.com and use code ROCKYMOUNTAIN. Again, go to wholesupplement.com and use coupon code ROCKYMOUNTAIN. Simplify your fight with the Whole Stack from Whole Supplement. Thank you to our wonderful sponsors. So Detective Myers and Tracy Poole, Katie's good friend, headed down to the morgue at the local hospital. This is not what Tracy was expecting at all. She was escorted over to a stretcher that had a body bag laying on top of it. The top of the bag was folded down so that she could see the face of the body. She saw just the side of a head and she instantly recognized a silver earring. It was Katie. That's so sad to me. That would be so hard as a friend. Like I'm thinking I mean, of anybody. As anyone, but I'm thinking of the people I'm close to as, yeah, I could recognize someone by their ears, by their earring, by their side profile. So sad. When Dave Sepich arrived at the Las Cruces Police Department, he was taken into a room with a police captain, a victim's advocate, and a minister. I mean, if you if you walked into a room like that as a parent, like I can't even imagine where your head would go, what you would start thinking. I honestly think I would just back up. I, think I, I honestly would down. just be like, I can't, ha like I'm leaving. You know <laughs> what I mean? Don't tell me. Because you know when you walk in a room with, with those people in there, you know it's not good news. Your life will never be the same after mm -hmm. that. So sad, yeah. So Dave was told that his daughter's remains were found about two miles from where she had been last seen at that house party. I mean, he literally fell to his knees and asked to go to the morgue and see her for himself. Like, he just needed to see that it was actually his daughter. He recalled leaving the morgue and feeling as if he was leaving his child there alone. It was like a living nightmare. Dave called his wife of over 30 years, Jayann, and he had to tell her that Katie was gone. Jayann, in shock, like asked if he was sure. He told her that he was and he had actually seen her remains. Dave and Jayann had just lost their oldest child. She was only 23 years old. Catherine J. Sepich was born December 26, 1980, to Dave and Jan in Dallas, Texas. When Katie was just two years old, they wanted to return to their hometown, so they made the move to Carlsbad, New Mexico, where Katie would grow up and bloom. Katie attended Riverside Elementary School, Eisenhower Middle School, P. 
PR Leva Junior High and graduated in 1999 from Carlsbad High School. All of these schools are located in Carlsbad, New Mexico. So Dave and Jan owned and operated a cleaning and janitorial supply business. Their family expanded with the addition of their son, AJ, and daughter, Carol Ann. Katie, even though the small child, was full of life and had a big personality. Yeah, she was really, like, athletic, rambunctious, and she just moved at 90 miles an hour her entire life. If Katie walked into a room, everybody just knew it instantly. She was fiercely protective of her siblings, and she just loved to debate and argue with her dad. Like, they were both a lot alike in that regard, and they just... I love that. back and forth. I, I love that. I have family members that, like, we will debate nonstop, and they're my favorite. They're the ones I can really, like, think a good conversation in with. Yeah. So in high school, Katie was a member of the Key Club, Yearbook Committee, Student Council, and Odyssey of the Mind, which is, I had to look this up. This sounds really cool. It was a competitive, creative problem-solving group in which she was able to participate at four state championships and three world championships. Can I say overachiever? So smart. Yeah. That's so cool. Katie attended college at New Mexico State University. She was a member of Pi Beta Phi sorority. She graduated with a degree in marketing, was pursuing grad school at NMSU at the time of her passing. So Mike Geringer, the family spokesperson, stated, quote, She was the kind of girl who would walk into a room and heads would just turn. She was beautiful, vivacious, and loved to be the center of attention. Katie was one of those kids who was really social, really enjoyed being around her friends and family. She's going to be missed by a lot of people. The Seppich family had always been really close, but they knew that this would be the hardest challenge of their lives. They were determined to not allow this tragedy to tear them apart, like they didn't want their marriage or their family to be torn apart by this awful tragedy. So they worked daily, hourly, I mean, even by the minute to work on staying close together and not let their grief separate them from each other. I think this is something that isn't talked about a lot, but grief tears families apart, especially marriages. Yeah. I think it's I think it's such an achievement and it shows such dedication to to their family that they just they were going to work constantly missing their daughter but also making sure that their family stayed as close as possible through such a difficult time katie was just 22 years old when she was murdered aj her younger brother was 18 years old and a student at university of new mexico in albuquerque the brother and sister were extremely close Carol Ann, who was Katie's little sister, was just nine years old at the time. She really struggled to understand what had happened. I can't imagine at such a young age being able to comprehend this situation. That would be really difficult. And a big sister. You know, they're just like your hero when you look up to your big sisters. And she's just gone. On September 14th, 2003, Katie's family thanked the outpouring of love and support they felt from Carlsbad, New Mexico community. They posted a thank you to the community in a local paper which I think is really nice. Uh, the paper is called the Carlsbad Current Argus. I got a lot of uh, research material from that paper. They did a really good coverage of Katie's um, disappearance and murder. Uh, it read, Mel, quote, A letter of gratitude to the community of Carlsbad. The family of Katie Sepich extends our deepest gratitude to all of you who have so uplifted us during this heartbreak of losing our precious Katie. Each of you who sent cards, flowers, gifts, donated to the scholarship fund, who called or visited with us, and especially those who prayed for us are truly instruments of God's love and peace. 
You will never understand what a true blessing you have bestowed upon us. Although we will never understand why this happened, we have been comforted and uplifted by a wonderful and loving community. Please be patient with us as we write letters of appreciation. It will take quite some time. And if in the chaos of this experience, your loving tribute was not recorded and is not acknowledged, please accept our heartfelt apology. We ask for your continued prayers for strength and comfort for all those who love and miss Katie. We would ask that your prayers include a plea to Almighty God for justice. That is so beautiful. What a beautiful statement. The investigation began as the family learned to navigate their new normal. The two men to head up the investigation was Robert Jones with the Donna Anna County Sheriff's Department as the lead investigator and Detective Mark Myers with the Las Cruces Police Department. They began with interviews. So they asked the family if Katie like had any enemies or anyone in her life that would want to hurt her. Their answer was absolutely not. The family believed that her murder like must have been a random act. They could not think of anyone who would want to hurt her in any way. Yeah, which statistically, that's not likely. Right. Mm-hmm. At Katie's home, law enforcement made a curious discovery. Though the house appeared normal when Tracy checked that morning of her murder, things were not. A screen was missing from a window of the house and Katie's brown sandals were found. She had worn the evening of August 30th, the night that she disappeared. They were laying in the decorative rock beside the window with the missing screen right there in her own front yard. Hmm. So it seems like she had at least headed home, If, but we don't know if she got inside at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it sounds like she was there if her shoes were just laying there in the rocks. Right. Katie's autopsy was completed and the results were sent to the detectives on September 2nd. Katie, who was just five foot two inches and 140 pounds, had fought her attacker. Like she didn't go easy and she must have just fought until the last second. She had been sexually assaulted and she died by strangulation. Katie had her attacker's DNA all over her body. She had pulled his hair out by the roots, which is great for DNA. Way to go, Katie, to fight so hard. She had his skin under all 10 of her fingernails and she had scratched, bit, and fought attacker brutally way to go katie yeah even though katie was extremely intoxicated that night her blood alcohol level was 0.25 which this is almost three times the legal limit katie had really like gathered her own evidence the night that she had died the dna was collected and entered into codis on september 9th 2003 police really crossed their fingers hoping for a hit to come through cross our fingers no hit from codis yet the police canvassed the neighborhood surrounding Katie's home. They were they were surprised. Not one neighbor reported hearing anything suspicious the night that Katie had been murdered. No loud voices, no arguing, no talking, no confrontation, no screams. Which is crazy with how hard she fought that nobody heard anything. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, no, no one heard anything. Yeah, even Katie's roommate and her mother, who were home at the time, like didn't hear a thing. In fact, the visiting mother was literally feet away from where Katie's shoes were discovered outside of the house. She said she did not awaken to any noises that night. That is crazy. She could not hear. I mean, some people sleep really sound. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the situation. I don't know. I sleep with earplugs because my husband snores like a grizzly bear. Love you, Christian. Christian. (laughs) So the detectives soon found out why. This is interesting. You see... Katie couldn't scream, Mel. She'd always had a very husky voice, and her vocal cords were never able to generate a scream. 
not during her entire life, even like as a child. Um, if she did try to scream, it came out like as airy, raspy, silent cry. It's interesting. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I've heard of people that like can't laugh, like when they laugh at silent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I haven't heard of someone not being able to scream. I have the loudest, most annoying laugh. It's so loud and I don't mean to, but I, yeah, I laugh really loud. My daughter has the loudest scream in the world. So I'm like, you scream if someone ever <laughs> tries to hurt you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Law enforcement checked every pawn shop in the state and the internet hoping to find Katie's missing jewelry. At the time of her attack, she had worn like a watch and two rings. One was that new birthstone ring that we talked about that she had just received from her boyfriend, Joe, but nothing was recovered in this search. Police asked her co-workers and managers at her workplace, the La Sombrero restaurant, you know, it was like a very busy, popular place to eat. And um, a lot of people just spent time there in Las Cruces there in the restaurant. But She was really well-known and really well-loved as a server. They asked, you know, were there any creepy customers that maybe bothered her or may have been, like, stalking Katie at the time? The staff at the restaurant couldn't think of any customer who had given her any trouble or bad vibes, and her mother, Jayanne, agreed with that. Katie and Jayanne were very close, and Katie had never said anything to her mom about a man that had creeped her out. So law enforcement sat down with Joe Bischoff. Katie's very serious boyfriend, and took his statement about that evening. Joe admitted to getting in an argument with Katie. Um, He also confessed his undying love for her. He told the police that they were planning on getting married soon. Along with Joe, the police questioned every person who attended the house party the last night of Katie's life. They were asking if anyone had seen something. Was anyone acting suspiciously? Did anyone see Katie leave? Partygoers shared a juicy little tidbit that Joe did not share with the police during his interview. Not a good sign, Joe. Joe, the loving boyfriend, was busy loving someone else that night. Busted. Katie had left the party extremely upset because Katie had walked in on Joe and another woman in in a bedroom during the party. Yeah, and this looks really bad because he didn't share this with police in the beginning. Cops don't like liars. Yeah. Don't lie to the cops. After hearing this from other partygoers, law enforcement called Joe back in for more of a chat. Joe admitted that he was fooling around with somebody else that night. He said he saw Katie leave the house and that that was the last time that he had seen her. Yeah, I don't like this story, Mel. I know. I agree. I don't like when stories change. Mm -hmm. Like you said, neither do the police. Yep. Joe said he and and a friend grabbed Katie's car and drove around the neighborhood and to Katie's house to look for her right after she left. So this is what, I think around 3 a.m., right? Apparently he grabs her car and is driving around the neighborhood. He said he didn't see her walking, so he returned to his cousin's house and fell asleep, cuddled up on the couch with the woman he was seen with earlier that night. Oh, Joe, this just just does not look good at all. No, uh, this is like super fishy. Joe said he tried calling Katie multiple times and he admitted that he was drunk and stupid that night. He said he'd check and check on that one. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that he had been a bad boyfriend. Check. Mm -hmm. But he said that he was not a murderer. So the police requested Joe volunteer a sample of his DNA for Katie's case. But Becky, he refused. It's incredible to me. Like, why would you? Of the 30 to 60 people who attended the house party that night, Joe was the only one who would not volunteer his DNA. 
How do you wrap your mind around that? I don't know. Okay, so let's go through this again. Joe is Katie's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. They get into this big fight the night that she is murdered. Yep. Mm-hmm. He admits to cheating on her and admits to being the last person to see her. Right. He gets into her car using her keys, drives to her house the exact same time that police believe that she is attacked. Yeah. Where her shoes are found, she wore that night. He said he tried to call her several times, but she didn't answer. But the police found that he had her phone back at the house. Why is he calling her? Yeah. If he has the phone. Just sounds like he's trying to cover for something, right? Yeah, I agree. And so did the police. Right. And then on top of all of that, like he is the only person to refuse to cooperate and volunteer his DNA. Yep, that's it. Plus, why would he drive to Katie's house and not get out and knock on the door, Mel? Yeah, I mean, just makes zero sense. Like, he's looking incredibly guilty at this point. So that same weekend, Joe left Las Cruces and returned home to Gallup, New Mexico. Investigators contacted him, like I'm sure that they weren't super thrilled he had left town, Mm -hmm. and asked him to come in for another interview. Well, Joe gave the cops a little bit of news. Yeah, he told the police that he would not be speaking with them anymore. No more interviews, no more contact, and he'd hired an aggressive defense attorney, Carmen Garza. Again, why would you not want to help the investigation of your partner? That that makes no sense to me, right? Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. And also I get the idea of hiring an attorney, but it makes... I agree. No, you're 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 right. You're right. But like, why would you not help? I know. Katie's parents were brokenhearted when they heard that Joe was unwilling to help. In fact, Katie's friends became quite mad and protective. Many people reached out to Joe and told him that he should not come to the funeral. Yeah. After dating for eight months, talking marriage and proclaiming love, Joe did not come to Katie's service. But practically everyone else did. The service was held on Saturday, September 6th. There were over a thousand people in attendance. Um, it was held at St. Edward's Catholic Church and it could not fit all of the friends and family that showed up. So they set up large speakers that were set up like in the overflow area. Father Noel Kramer officiated. So during the service, law enforcement photographed and video recorded all of the tires. Remember the tire tracks? And the vehicles in the parking lot. So they hope for a match. No matches on the tire tread. Which I have heard that the police doing this before is they go to the service because chances are the person who murdered her is there. Is going to be there. Yep. Yeah. The Sebich family offered a $100,000 reward in exchange for finding Katie's killer. The police, community, and everyone really tried to keep her case in the spotlight. There must be somebody out there that knew something. Detectives received word that the forensic evidence had come back with some answers. All of the DNA under each one of Katie's fingernails, remember she had skin under all 10 fingernails, all matched one man. They entered the information in CODIS and again, no match. Her killer was not in the system. I mean, this does support the theory of a personal relationship with Katie versus like a seasoned criminal, right? Because they're not already in the system. Yeah, yeah. Like actually this totally, I'm going to go off topic for just a second, but I was reading an article I think it was on Investigation Discovery, about, like, how many, like, they call them one-and-dones. They're murderers that just have one victim, that they just, like, lose their cool and kill a loved one or 
you know, some a type of domestic violence. But their predictions of these one and dones, they believe that there's like there could be a million out there. And they just never just go into- walking around and they're never gonna end up in CODIS. They're not in CODIS. There's no fingerprints on file, nothing. Because of all these one and dones. And then they just live squeaky clean. So and then they live squeaky clean. Uh-huh. We're end up in the system. Uh, super scary, right? Yeah. And so they did some creative problem solving. Joe and Katie had intercourse at her house on the day that she died. What if they could use Joe's DNA that was on her bedding to test? Very creative. They knew that Katie was in a monogamous relationship. So they took a chance and tried for the DNA. And guess what? It worked. They got an answer, but surprisingly, not the answer they expected. Yeah, the DNA that they found on the sheath did not match Joe. Joe did not kill Katie. That is a shocker. Yes. When I was researching this, I could not believe, because that guy looked so guilty. <laughs> Very guilty. Yeah. Okay, so let's stop here so we can all breathe and, you know, get a grip. Let's take a break. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. Thank you again to our amazing sponsors. So before the break, we just found out that Joe's DNA did not match Katie's killer. Shocked, like a complete shock. Man, these cases we're covering lately. Mel, they're they're tricky. Yeah. (laughs) So of course the cops had to go back to square one to find the murderer of Katie Sepich. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like why didn't Joe just help from the beginning? I don't know. Like, but I would have saved a lot of time of the police. Like, he, he, I get that he's innocent and he has a right to attorney and all of that. Right. But it wasted a lot of time for the poor Seppage family. Yeah. After hearing how the police used her sheets to get a sample of his DNA and hearing the test results, he did officially give a sample and they received the same results. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. On November 18th, law enforcement received some official info about Katie's killer. Remember, this is 2003, so DNA was not as advanced as it is today. Yet, they were able to profile the killer as either Hispanic or Native American. About the same time, law enforcement received a lead from about 1,500 miles away. In Green Bay, Wisconsin, there was a 25-year-old woman who was attacked as she left a bar alone after getting into a fight with her boyfriend. Sounds familiar, right? very familiar. Yeah, she was attacked by two men. She was raped, strangled, and an accelerant was poured on top of her body. They set her on fire and left her for dead in a field. Again, sound familiar, Mel? Yes. 
Amazingly, she survived and crawled to the nearest house. She's amazing. The police were able to release sketches of her two attackers, and a local dairy farm manager recognized the men as two of his employees. Gregoria Morales and Juan Roberto Nito. The two men had both quit recently, right after the attack took place, and they had left town. And one of the men actually had connections to Roswell, New Mexico. Okay, this is sounding like pretty spot on, right? Yeah. Well, one of the men, Morales, couldn't stay away. He returned again to Green Bay area and the dairy. The dairy manager, which can I say this guy's like a hero? I love this guy. He's amazing. He was super smart. The dairy manager brought Morales a soda and offered him to have a drink. Morales drank it, and the dairy manager carefully gathered it and put it in a plastic bag and turned it over to police. I mean, that is so amazing, too. He must be a true crime fan. I so want to do this one day. That's, seriously. Yeah, that's really cool. So one day, Mel, you may see me, like, with a with a plastic, with a latex glove, like, grab a can that you drink. <laughs> I think we're going to commit a crime that you have to do that for. I'm just let's, kidding. Let's do it on, to somebody else. Let's do it. Together. Let's do it. But, yeah, dairy manager, you're awesome. Yes. On December 7th, 2004... The two men were officially charged with rape and burning of a human body. Morales was captured in Green Bay and Nito was captured in Georgia. They were both tied with their DNA to the Green Bay case, but not to Katie's. Again, not to Katie's, which seemed to have a lot of promise, don't you think? Did, yeah. Oh. Again, back to square one for law enforcement. The detectives were so disappointed the case had not progressed. After 23 years of service, Robert Jones decided it was time for his retirement. He had a really hard time leaving with Katie's case still unsolved. Myers pressed forward and gave the case all he had. I mean, this was just dead end after dead end, and the community really became anxious. A lot of resources had been poured into Katie's case, and they had no results. District Attorney Susanna Martinez reported to the Albuquerque Journal on August 30th, 2004, Quote, we have spent tens of thousands of dollars collecting DNA, and we haven't found a match, end quote. Well, little did they know, the cogs of justice were moving. In Las Cruces, in their community, and even their police station, they were so close to Katie's murder, they could have just reached out and slapped the cuffs on him. So over a year previously, this was just a few months after Katie was killed, there were two women, Anila and Leslie, and they had noticed that someone had been watching them. They were enrolled in college, and they shared an apartment. It was two-bedroom, two-bath, and it was close to the campus. Yeah, this person had been seen crouching below their window and stealing peeks inside. Creepers, right? Mm -hmm. They could hear him bumping into bushes or the exterior walls, like, constantly. They'd hear, like, scratches against the exterior walls. Their gate would be left open and like plants and bushes would be trampled outside their apartment. So they did what they could to protect themselves. They like changed their routines. They notified their apartment complex and security. They even went and started taking self-defense classes. They weren't like exactly afraid. They thought this guy was really weird and strange, but they didn't see him as necessarily very dangerous. Can I just say like it makes me so mad that like this is pretty typical like the cases we cover, but like also both of us experienced this type of thing in college. Yeah. That like as a young woman, it's like, oh, this so happens to everyone. Yeah. Yeah. 
get some pepper spray. And I know. Punch out. I know. Yeah. It just makes me mad that this is like not uh, this huge thing that happened to just one or two people. It happens to all young women. Okay, well, their opinion of their weirdo really changed two and a half months after Katie was murdered. Leslie felt something really strange that evening. Almost like something was like in the air. She called, you know, call it intuition, call it whatever, but she knew something wasn't right. She laid in bed while she was talking to her boyfriend, um, who later would become her husband, by the way. She like didn't want to hang up. She really felt uneasy and like asked if they could stay on the phone together to fall asleep. They did. And she slept with her phone in her hand and her boyfriend was on the other line. Sometime later, Leslie awoke suddenly out of a deep sleep. She could feel that someone was in the house. She could just knew it. She felt it. That just gives me the chills. I know. About I know. But you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, you yes. know that feeling, right? The air almost changes. Leslie believed her guardian angel protected her that night from danger. She ran straight into Anila's bedroom and slammed and locked the door. But before the door was shut, she saw a silhouette. The man. He was standing in their home. Moments later, the doorknob on the locked bedroom door like started to shake. The girl screamed and ran into the attached bathroom and immediately called 911. Within three minutes, the police responded and captured the man who had broken into their home. Okay, way to go, Las Cruces, New Mexico Police Department. Three minutes? Yeah, that's a quick response time. Awesome. 27-year-old Gabriel Avila was armed with a large knife. He was arrested and convicted of aggravated burglary and resisting arrest. He was sentenced to nine years in prison, but this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Mel, you share it. I can't do it without swearing. Oh, this is infuriating. The judge actually let him out before sending him to prison so he could, quote, get his affairs in order. He has no right to get his affairs in order. He no right. Someone's house. Mm-mm. I mean, no surprise when he was like, oh, he took off and became a fugitive. I didn't realize that people can just go to prison when it's convenient for them. I, I don't know what that judge was thinking. It's ridiculous. I can't handle that. Go ahead, Mel. Yeah, I need to take some deep breaths. Avila was on the run for over a year and then was finally recaptured in 2005. I can't imagine how scary that year was for these two ladies. Yeah, for sure. They don't know if he's going to come back. Yeah, he was taken directly to prison this time. And his DNA was taken at this point and submitted to Congress. What do you think happened, Mel? On December 18th, 2006, Detective Myers received the phone call he had been waiting for after three years. CODIS had a partial match on Katie's killer. Myers obtained a warrant and retrieved a better quality sample from Avila, and it was a 100% match. After three years, they had finally found Katie's killer, Gabriel Avila. His name had never even come up once during the investigation, and he had absolutely no connection whatsoever to her at all. It was one of those rare cases that it was a completely random attack. Myers interviewed Avila's ex-wife and tracked down the old truck that he had at the time of Katie's murder. The truck had been sold, but the new owners were completely cooperative with law enforcement. The tires matched the treads that they had found at the scene of her body. Yeah, the ex-wife had actually found a ring in the truck in the center console before it was sold. And yes, it was one of Katie's rings that she had been wearing the night that she had been killed. Detective Myers went to prison and spoke to Avila face to face. He shared with him all of the evidence he had, and Avila knew 
he was done. On December 22nd, Avila shared the full story. He was in Katie's neighborhood buying cocaine when he almost hit Katie with his car as she walked towards her house. He turned around and spoke to her to make sure that she was okay. He offered her a ride and she turned him down. She explained that she was almost home and pointed to her house. She was just right there. So at this point in the story, I found contradicting statements from Avila. So we'll just give you guys both just to make sure we're covered. Yeah. So Avila said either she didn't want to wake up her roommate. So she tried to get in through a window or she said she'd like forgotten her keys. But either way, he saw her struggling to get in through that window. It's all coming together, right? Avila said he had to take the chance that he had been given. He attacked, raped, and strangled Katie all there right in her front yard of her own home. After she was dead, he loaded her body into his truck and drove to the East Mesa Desert. There, he dumped her body. He attempted to light her body on fire, but the fire burned itself out. This attack was completely random. Katie was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Heartbreaking. I mean, if she had just walked home like a minute faster or left a minute later, she probably would still be alive. I think you're right. I mean, it, it, it could have been just seconds that she that she was just right there. Ugh. Which this thought is terrible because walking into your own home and being attacked, raped, and murdered in your own garden is just, it's a terrible thought. It's not Katie's fault. She was just there at the wrong time. And like we had talked about earlier, these this kind of thing, I mean, not the murder itself, but having somebody creep around your house happens a lot to college mm-hmm. girls who are all living together. Mm-hmm. And it's just so sad that this guy is the worst ever and oh. just turned into a murderer. And it was only three blocks. Yeah. I'm sure she thought that oh, it's only three blocks. I'm just going to walk home. Yeah. And she was drunk, so she didn't have her phone or mm-hmm. her keys. I mean, if she had had her keys on her. Then he wouldn't have seen her struggling with the window. She might have just gotten inside. Like yeah. Just one little thing could have changed and this wouldn't have happened. And she was probably trying to do the right thing and not drive. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, it's just sad. Yeah. So the Seppich family is so grateful for all the hard work of law enforcement. They were so relieved when prosecutors didn't drop any of the charges and offered no deals. Avila pleaded guilty to all charges and will spend the remainder of his days in prison with no chance of parole. So... I do want to say I'm glad he pled guilty because going through trial for a family is just reliving all of it. He took responsibility for his actions. Which is the only semi-decent thing we can say about him. But still, like, yeah, I think you're right that that he, that they didn't, the family didn't have to go through that just vicious trial. Yeah. So, Mel, you'll like this. The family met with a psychic. Oh, boy. And the psychics in her case... So the psychic said that Katie's case would be solved through DNA at Christmas time. And she was right. Avila pleaded guilty on December 26th. Listen, I know we've talked about how I don't agree with psychics. <laughs> I don't believe them, whatever. But I feel like families in this situation, like you just are reaching out and doing mm-hmm. whatever you can. So 100%. Like, zero judgment. They were just trying to get some comfort and I... Yeah. And that was Katie's birthday, December 26th. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After Avila went to prison, he asked to meet with the Sepich family. The family agreed and Avila apologized for his actions. He said that if he could undo what he did, that he would. He seemed very remorseful. Katie's mom had forgiven him. And when she is asked why she had chosen to forgive her daughter's murderer, 
She simply answered because, quote, God wins that way. I love that. I can't imagine the strength that that takes Mm -hmm. to forgive that person. I mean, what an incredible family. And so this leads right into our Rocky Mountain redemption. The Sepich family and their work creating and advocating for Katie's law is this week's redemption. The law has saved countless victims across the country. While in the midst of her daughter's murder investigation, like this is before it's solved. This is in the middle. Those, what, three years? Yeah. Mm -hmm. J.N. Sepich, Katie's mom, and her little sister, Carol Ann, Katie's little sister, Carol Ann, um, saw a need for a change. The Sepich family learned that the DNA was only retrieved from convicted felons, not those who are arrested. So the Deming Headlight reported on March 8, 2005, under the new law, suspects 18 and over will have to provide DNA samples from a cheek swab, for example, when they are booked at jails or detention centers for any of a range of felonies, including murder, kidnapping, burglary, and sex offenses. If they're ultimately acquitted or not prosecuted or convicted of a misdemeanor, they can request that that sample be expunged. So as we know, the wheels of justice can move very slowly, if at all. So Jayon had this passion, conviction, and drive to see a change. With help from other government officials, Sepich submitted a new bill to New Mexico state legislation. Yeah, she wanted to see anyone who was arrested for a felony that they had to submit a cheek swab for DNA and so that information could be entered into CODIS. Jayan was told by many people that the chance of this new law to actually be passed was slim to none, right? So during the 30-day legislation session, she moved 300 miles to Santa Fe and she worked from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. every single day. Yeah, they were, there was 112 legislators in New Mexico, and she met face-to-face with 108 of them. That's a lot of work. Many legislators were concerned about the law impeding on the Fourth Amendment, right to privacy. But she made the argument that DNA is the modern fingerprint, and it must be used for identification. Jayanne worked tirelessly, and in February of 2006, Katie's law passed with only five no votes. Before she was killed, Katie was asked by her mom what she wanted to do with her life. Do you remember her answer, Mel? Change the world. With Katie's law, our world has been changed, and countless people who would have been victims are able to live their lives without violent crime. Yeah, today's episode was named 31 Down, 19 to Go. The reason I named the episode this is Katie's law has spread to 31 states across America. When J.N. is asked about the future of Katie's law, her answer is 31 down, 19 to go. She will not rest until each state has passed Katie's law to protect its citizens, to keep someone like her Katie safe. And that is your Rocky Mountain Redemption. Isn't that great? It's so cool. What an amazing woman J.N. is. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening today. We want you to re- we want to remind you to follow us on all of our social medias. There will be a link in our notes with our link tree. You can find all of those social medias there. Yes. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, it really helps us out. So we will be back next week with another story to tell you straight from the Rocky Mountains. And remember, it's our spooky story. I was just going to say our first spooky story is next week. Yeah, all through October. We're going to have some spookiness for you. So until then, keep your hands clean. 